So while Carol's handing out the baskets, uh, the money in the baskets today goes to People's Resource Center. So put some money in there. Yeah, I'm sorry? Well, patience, Mr. Scheidt. Okay. There will be a basket. <laughs> that, was, that was Wayne. Don't give one to Wayne. Yeah. You know, you, you seem to be a troublemaker when I teach Bible study. I'll just point, note that. Okay, um, let's just, actually, let's just pause everything for just a moment and let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, in the season of Lent, the door of divine repentance has been opened. Your grace has shown forth the grace which illumines our souls. The time of repentance is here. Let us put aside the works of darkness. Grant us your armor of light that passing through Lent as through a great sea, we may reach the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, the baskets are being handed out. Does everybody have a, a handout that says on the top, that uh, has a front page that looks like that I didn't prepare? <laughs> everybody got one of those? If you don't have one, raise your hand. Everybody's got one. This is great. Okay. Um, so here's what happened. So Pastor Bruzik's gone. And he said to me, uh, would you like to teach my Bible study? And I said, that's great. I'd love to. And he said, you can do whatever you want. And usually when he says things like that, I think to myself, well, okay, I gotta, I'm going to find out what he was doing and get, make sure I sort of get some continuity. But then I realized he just said, you can do whatever you want. So <laughs> I'm going to do whatever I want. Um, there will be some continuity, and you can see that in the title of the Bible study. I don't know which, one, which number we're on. And this is, this is another reason for the two question marks, or for that question mark, so um, before Pastor Bruzik left, we didn't have a chance to chat about which, uh, which Bible stories you've covered under the theme of telling stories. And so today, uh, we're going to try something new, something somewhat experimental, also something I can get away with since I'm only here every so often. We're going to try uh, applying the, 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 the paradigm that you've been working with from <laughs> gospel stories to an Old Testament story, okay? That's what's, com that's what's coming, but... Uh, I'm drinking water because I talk too fast, so I'm going to just slow down. <laughs> I really want a cup of coffee, though. Um, so, but in the spirit of doing what I want, oh, turn to the next page. Um, I, I, th there's a blog that I like to follow, and uh, they ran this story uh, which showed the cover of The New Yorker. Uh, this is a complete non sequitur. This has nothing to do with what's, what's about to come, but it has everything to do with the Christian life. Um, this was the cover for February 23rd and March 2nd. And you see what's, what's going on there. There's a fellow uh, who's looking at his smartphone. I showed this to the high schoolers last week. And then I realized later that it, to them it probably seemed like a passive-aggressive comment on their cell phone use, which it wasn't at all. There's a theological point to be made here, which is what, the, uh, what, what this blog was doing. Uh, so note what's happening. According to the New Yorker, uh, this fellow is so attentive to his... Uh, his cell phone, and he's, his, his body is so curved that notice what he misses above him. He misses that beautiful butterfly. Well, the, uh, the blog that, uh, that I got, stole this from um, referred to a quotation by, no worries, a quotation by Martin Luther in his lectures on Romans. I'm just going to read this to you. This is, this, is a, this is a really important theological concept for Luther. He says the following, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin being so deeply curved in on itself. So if you're going to picture that, 
what the corruption of the first sin does, this is what it looks like, right? So you're looking, you're, you're staring at your own navel, right? Being so curved in on itself that it not only bends, our, bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them as is plain in the works righteous and the hypocrites, or rather even uses God himself in order to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. So if you want to know what original sin looks like, there it is. You don't have to have the cell phone for it to be true, right? Um, but here's, as, I've, as I've been reflecting, I've had this on my desk for a while, waiting for the opportune time to use it, and uh, here it is. Um, as I've been looking at this, I kept on thinking uh, it's not quite accurate. The, the picture the relationship of the picture to the theological point. So suppose you're the writers of the New Yorker and you're the illustrator here. The point you're trying to convey is that if you are curved in on yourself, in this case with your mobile technology, you're going to miss some beautiful things going on in the world, right? Uh, but that's not, that's not what we're aiming at in undoing this in curvatus in se, right? That is, that is a, a wonderful byproduct of it. But... If this fellow was to straighten up, I, th- maybe this won't make any sense to you. I, we just read a book for the kids, uh, for, for, for my kids, a book from the library. I pick out the books that have the coolest looking covers, and this one had a cover that was a caterpillar. And uh, I can't remember the title of the book, but the point was the caterpillar had to go to Mexico to become a butterfly, right? Uh, but the entire time, he is a creepy crawly bug, right? And what, what, I, find, what I love about the book is that uh, even when he gets to Mexico and he grows some wings, he's still a creepy crawly bug, but he has wings, right? So when this fellow stri- straightens up, uh, yes, he'll see some butterflies, but also what's going to happen as that butterfly keeps flying right towards him? He's going to get smacked right in the face with a creepy crawly bug, right? Now, this is, a, this is an important thing to note about what happens as we deal with sin. Uh, uh, coming to terms with our our fallen nature, our, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, and uh, receiving God's forgiveness um, opens you up so that you stand upright, you have a relationship with God. The sermon this morning was uh, a great illustration of this, right? So we are identified by our relationship to God and our relationship to our neighbors. But that doesn't mean that, for instance, you're always going to enjoy the things of the world, occasionally the things that are, that, that you experience in the world are going to be like a creepy crawly bug smacking you straight in the face, um, which doesn't have to be which doesn't have to be bad news for you as a Christian because you're upright in relationship with God and in relationship with your neighbor and and you know that regardless of regardless of whether you're enjoying life or suffering in life, God is working all things out for your good. So that's the end of the non sequitur. Uh, any questions? Marianne. Thanks for telling me that was a cell phone. I thought the guy was trying to commit suicide. Oh. I'd have to, I'm going to have to re- rethink the whole thing if he was. Nope, it's a cell phone. It's a, he's texting somebody. I and mean, what you also don't know is that there's a light pole right here. He's about to walk into it. Um, okay. Let's turn the page. So, here's what I want to do. Um, just, just for the sake of experiment, raise your hand. If I say the name Abigail, do you, know, uh, do you know the story of Abigail in the Bible? Raise your hand. Okay, perfect. That's great. So, this will be, be, be a lot of fun. Um, 
we hear about Abigail, and Abigail's actually, she's a, she's a big part of the story, but the story actually involves three characters, David, Nabal, and Abigail. Um, and the story comes in 1 Samuel 25. I gave it to you there because I wanted you to have my notes, or some notes, that pertain to the story. Um, and first, let me give you the context. Uh, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel come together as a big chunk, right? 1 Samuel is all about the, uh, the ascendancy of David to the, kingdom, to the throne of the kingdom of Israel. And a lot of things happen along the way. Um, and a lot of r- really important things happen along the way. So 1 Samuel 1 through 3 is all about the birth of the prophet Samuel. Um, and this is so important in Israel because, uh, as we find out in 1 Samuel 3, the word of the Lord was sparse in those days, right? There was no prophet. There was nobody speaking the word of the Lord. In fact, things were in such dire, the, the circumstances were so dire that Eli, the priest who sat outside the, the worship place in Shiloh, his sons who were supposed to take care of the sacrifices and, and, and minister to the people, they were stealing the best parts of the sacrifices which were reserved from God and they were defiling the young maidens who would enter into the temple. Okay, it was terrible. It was, it was very bad and, the, the, and there was no prophet. Okay, the story continues um, in sort of devastating terms. So chapters 4 through 6 of 1 Samuel has to do with how the ark of God, which for Israel is the representation and, and actually is the presence of God um, among Israel. So you've got the ark of the covenant and on top of the ark of the covenant is the mercy seat where God comes to meet with his people in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, okay? Um, well, the ark, it just so happens. So uh, th- these are great stories. So here, so... Sometime, go and sit down and read First and Second Samuel all in one sitting. It, uh, I, tr- I tried to do a word count, but I couldn't copy all the text. So it may- maybe it would take you a couple of hours. Uh, it would be highly worth it. I- I'd give it a shot because it's one big story. So anyway, the Ark of the Covenant, um, the people are fighting against the Philistines, and they're losing the battle, and they say, hey, I have an idea. Let's, let's bring the Ark out to the battlefield because we can... We can, because if, if the ark's here, then of course God's going to fight for us. Well, when you try and leverage God, it doesn't usually work, right? It never works, right? So the ark actually gets stolen. And um, one, of the, one of the notable things about First uh, and Second Samuel is that it is a very, very artistically crafted piece of literature, right? A piece of history. So the, the scene where the ark is stolen is beautiful. I mean, it's tragically beautiful. Um, the news comes back that the ark has been stolen and Eli's sons have been killed. Eli's sitting outside of the temple in Shiloh and when he hears not the news that his sons are dead but that the ark has been stolen, he falls over backwards in his chair and his neck is broken and he dies. At the same time, simultaneously, one of Eli's sons' wives gives birth to a baby, dies in childbirth, and as she's delivering the baby, she names him Ichabod. The glory has departed, right? This is, things look terrible for Israel, right? The ark has been stolen. Um, But the good news is there's a prophet, right? God sent Samuel. Um, And the the setup for this was already in chapters 1 through 3. I have to be careful not to spend too much time on the context, otherwise we won't get to the story. So let me, I'll speed it up a little bit. Uh, um, We find out Saul, uh, so the people say, this people say, we want a king like the nations, and God says, am I not good enough for you? And they say, nope, we want a king. And so Samuel anoints Saul to be the king. Now Saul um, goes off and fights the Philistines right away like he should, but then he commits three grave sins 
uh, one of which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but those three grave sins uh, aren't so bad. Uh, well, they're bad in themselves in that they're sins. But the real problem with Saul um, is that he doesn't, he's unrepentant. So, he's, so Samuel, one of the sins, he offers the sacrifices when he's not authorized to. Samuel comes up and says, hey, what are you doing? And Saul said, I had to do it because of this and that and the other thing. And, Sa- and Samuel says, no, you didn't. I'm, I'm the one who's supposed to offer the sacrifices. And Saul was here making excuses. Okay, so that's, hold that in your mind as one of, the, one of the things that identifies Saul in the book of Samuel. When he's confronted with his sin, he does not repent. He makes excuses. He justifies himself. And finally, um, before David is anointed, uh, Samuel says to Saul, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. I'm, I'm going away. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer uh, at your service. So that takes us to, the, to, to uh, chapter 16, where we start the, uh, the rest of the book of 1 Samuel is sort of the relationship between David and Saul. And you know, you know sort of the anecdotes about this, right? Saul, uh, so uh, Samuel anoints David to be the king. Um, David kills Goliath. David has slain his, his uh, t- Saul has not slain his thousands. David has tens of thousands. Saul gets contemptuous and, start, and tries to kill David. And David... What does David do? Uh, does, he, does, he try, does he seek vengeance against Saul for his crimes? No. Okay, that was an easy one. He doesn't do that. Uh, but think about this, and this is important for our story today. Think about how difficult that was for David, right? He's been anointed king. Um, Saul has sinned against him. David has ample opportunity to take, a, to, to take the throne but he doesn't because it's not yet his time. Uh, Saul is still, even though he's sinned and even though the spirit has left him and even though Samuel has said, I'm not going to serve you as prophet anymore, Saul is still the Lord's anointed. Okay? And David, uh, one of the defining characteristics of David during this second half of 1 Samuel is that he, he lives in this, this combat between what he knows is coming, the, his, his enthronement, uh, because he's been anointed king. What he knows is coming, and this, this, this sort of pretender who sits on the throne um, but is, anoint- is nonetheless anointed by God. So that, that tension uh, is very lively and, and, is, and is integral to how we understand what, what David's doing in Samuel. Do you have any questions so far? Okay. So that's the broader context. The immediate context is one of those specific instances where David uh, spares Saul. You remember this story, right? So uh, Saul is taking a break in a cave, and David comes up, has an opportunity. His, his all's men say, hey, here's your chance. Cut his throat. We'll go back. You, everybody loves you. This is going to be great. You'll become king. And what does David do? You remember what he does? Cut, yeah, cuts off the corner of his robe, right? Which really, I mean, in... in um, it's really not so bad, right? <laughs> he, can, he can make a good point out of that. But you know what uh, is remarkable is David feels so bad about it because, because even that is an affront to uh, his, his lord, his king, right? So he comes out of the cave and, and says to Saul, see, I, I did this and I shouldn't have. And um, David is penitent there. Now, Saul is very fickle and Saul here forgives him and, and, Saul, and Saul leaves, Okay. Um, but that's the immediate context. David exercised this restraint. Um, he, he's waiting for his time. Um, there's, a, there's an author um, that I love, I love on this story. He writes a lot about Samuel. He wrote a, a book about the first two volumes of, 
uh, about First and Second Samuel. His name is Peter Lightheart, and he, he describes David's temptation here as the temp- as the temptation in the garden to grasp after something which was not yet his. Right. So he had the, he was facing this temptation. Now, uh, let's jump into First Samuel twenty five. You've got the text in front of you, and I have numbers helpfully, hopefully, uh, beside the text to show you where we are. We're going to go through this. Um, I think we've got to read the whole text, so, but I'll, I'll, I'll pause and, uh, and give it to you as we go here. And all along, what I want you to be thinking about is the same kind of questions that you've, a- you've asked about s- stories in the Gospels. So um, it's a little bit different because Jesus, the, the son of Jesus in the flesh doesn't appear in this story, right? But Jesus is nonetheless in this story, okay? Um, Jesus is in the Old Testament, Sometimes he shows up actually as a person, right? So uh, you've got um, the, the visitors that come to Abraham and Sarah and tell them that he's going to have, they're going to have a kid. Um, sometimes he's like he's the rock that follows them and the pillar, the pillar of fire that follows Israel. Sometimes he comes in the form of uh, a person who is like him, a foreshadowing of him. So David is is a type of Jesus, a type of Christ. He isn't he isn't the second person of the Trinity, but he shows us Christ. Same thing in this story. So Jesus is in this story, um, and the exercise for you in this Bible study is to, is to, first of all, find Jesus, and then ask yourself the same questions that you've been asking um, all along in this Bible study, which are, how can one, uh, how can I tell this story? Uh, this is a long story. Maybe, maybe you'd have an opportunity to tell it. How could I tell it in a way which is you know, gentle, loving, kind to someone who doesn't know or also, uh, this story is also really very really helpful for just informing you um, and how you should interact with people um, uh, because, of, because of the way the characters behave. Okay, enough uh, intro. Let's go. So, verse 1, 1 Samuel 25, now Samuel died. So, already here, we have a problem. Okay? Um, so, this takes us right back to 1 Samuel 3, 1. Mary told me I wasn't supposed to stand near that. First um, Samuel three one, where the word of the Lord is sparse among the people. God gave him Samuel. Now Samuel's dead. What do you suppose will happen when Samuel dies? Things are going to go awry, fall to pieces, right? Um, and what what's what's interesting we find out is that they fall to pieces for David, in particular. David needs Samuel. David needs a prophet. Now Samuel died, and Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. So there's a guy. His, he was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. And there's no questions about it. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and behaved badly. He was a Calebite. Um, you remember who Caleb was. He was one of the good guys that went and uh, spied out the, the promised land, right? Um, but it's also a kind of a pun in Hebrew because the word, the word Caleb sounds like the word for a dog. Caleb, dog, okay? So there's no, there's no question about it. The woman was the discerning one and beautiful. The man was harsh and behaved bad. Now, number three. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. 
Okay, so shearing the sheep is important. It's a, it's a festival time, right? This is, I mean, it, this is when uh, you're reaping the, the profits of all of your labor. And so it's a time for feasting, okay? David goes and says, uh, sends the man, and this, this is the way you should greet him. Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, how does, uh, how does that request strike you? Uh, how does it sound? What is David's attitude or his posture? Humble, right? Uh, your servants to your son David. Um, it's, it, it, and it is a, it's, a, it's a very humble request. Three times peace to the, to the, to the house of Nabal. Um, and, and he says, it's not, it's not just like I'm some stranger either. Look what I've been doing. I've been taking care of, I've been taking care of your shepherds. I've been protecting them. Um, this, there's an interesting parallel here, which you can, you can sort of chew on if you want. Um, an interesting parallel here between the story of David and Nabal and the story of Jacob and his uncle Laban. Interestingly, both in English and in Hebrew, Laban and Nabal are palindrome, or what do you call it when they're the palindromes, right? Yeah, no, that's not right. They're the opposite of each other. So, um, but remember what happened to Jacob? He worked for seven years, took care of his, took care of Laban's flocks, and and uh, and all he asked was for the hand of Rachel in marriage, right? Hang on to that parallel as we go along here. So that's number four. Number five. When David's young men came, they said all of this to Nabal in the name of David, and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants in these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So, uh, we see a pretty clear picture of Nabal, right? He's pretty full of himself. Everything's his. And, uh, go ahead, Richard. Uh, just interesting as well that he didn't say anything about Jesse. David. David did, yeah, right. So, okay, so, so um, Richard just said uh, David himself didn't mention anything about being the son of Jesse, right? But Nabal identifies him as the son of Jesse, which means that Nabal knows the political environment, right? He knows that King Saul's on the throne. He knows that there's a son of Jesse David, who's been anointed. So when you ask this question, who is David? It's not like he doesn't know who David is. But what he's saying is, um, I'm not going to pick sides. I'm not going to uh, say one way or the other who's the right king, um, which, is, uh, which, which is a weak position. It's a, it's a, it's a lukewarm position, right? So either, either David is rightfully anointed or he's not. And if he is rightfully anointed then uh, Nabal owes him all this, all this respect, right? That he does not give in him. He spites him. Um, he says there are, there, are, there are many servants these days, implying that David is one of those servants, right? One of those servants of Saul who's breaking away from his master. Any questions up to this point? Okay. Good. Let's keep going. Number six. This is where things turn ugly. Verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. 
and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So, uh, David is very different here than he was even in the last chapter of, uh, of 1 Samuel, right? So, he's vengeful. Um, and, it's, I mean, it's, 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 no, it's no insignificant thing that he doesn't have a prophet there telling him, keeping, reminding him um, of, of, his, uh, of his position and that justice, and that in this case, the justice is not, is not his to execute. He's not the king. He's not, he's not on the throne. He's been anointed, but it's not his yet, right? Again, he's grasping after, here he is now, grasping after something which isn't yet his, okay? He's, he's reaching for the, fruit, the, for, for the forbidden fruit in the garden, Okay? Verse 14, But one of the young men told Abigail and the Baal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Okay? So they come back and tell Abigail the story. Um, and, uh, and they know that, that David is coming with, with a vengeance. Right? Number seven. Then Abigail made haste. And look at what she does. So this is, I mean, this, this is, I think, don't hold me to this down the road. This is my favorite story in the Old Testament. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five sayas of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. I don't know how many donkeys you need to carry all that stuff, but uh, she's showing David what the hospitality that Nabal didn't show him, and in abundance, in excess, right? Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable what she's doing for him. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. As she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came toward her, and she met them. And this is what David says. This is what he has in mind. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. And now he swears an oath. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also. If by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now, what's really striking here is that in swearing this oath, David sounds a lot like Saul. One of Saul's sins, one of the sins that, that uh, there's, there's, like, there's like three that are really clearly identifiable. One of them that, that is on the way to his hardening is when he swears a rash oath. Um, and it's in 1 Samuel 14. I'll just, I'll just tell you really briefly what happens. So uh, the men of Israel were uh, fighting against the Philistines, and Saul swears this oath. They're, they're pursuing them. They, they had them on the run. They were pursuing them. And Saul says this, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Okay, so, so he swears an oath, um, and he does it without thinking about what that means, right? So there's a couple reasons why that was a bad idea. Uh, one is men are tired, right? They've been fighting. And two... He doesn't, he doesn't know whether he can catch these Philistines. On what grounds can he, 
can he swear this oath so that no one in his army can eat until he catches everybody, right? Uh, it's, it's a devastating oath. Well, the story turns even more devastating when it is his son, Jonathan, who violates the oath. They're walking in the forest and there's honey on the ground and Jonathan takes the tip of his staff and, uh, and eats the honey. Uh, and his eyes become bright, but then, I can't remember exactly how they find out. Let's see. Um, they say, that, ah, here's, this is great. First uh, Samuel 14, 37. And Saul, so, so they, they, were, they were pursuing the Philistines and Saul inquired of God. He said, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him. And Saul says, there must have been, somebody, must have, somebody must have eaten. Somebody must have broken the oath. And so they, they cast lots. And Saul says, it's me and Jonathan versus all of you. Well, this, the lot falls on him and Jonathan. And then they cast lots between him and Jonathan. They find out it's Jonathan. And this, is, this becomes important later. What happens when they discover that it's Jonathan? What does Saul say? He says, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Now his people are a little bit more rational than him. And they say, shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? For Jonathan was the one, was the one who was actually leading the, the battle against the Philistines. Far be from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair from his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God to this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, but, God, but his father, Saul, was willing, to, was willing to hand him over uh, to death on account of his rash vow, right? He had made this vow unwisely. Everybody still good? You, you following the story so far? Okay, back to, back to 25. So David had sworn this oath, and it was a bad oath. It, that justice was not his to give. Number 9, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. And this is where um, Abigail... So I'll t- tell you right now, Abigail is a Christ figure in this story. She is a type of Christ in this story because of what follows right now. So she comes before David knowing that he has sworn death against the house of Nabal, right? And what does she do? She doesn't come, you know, hesitant. She comes and she bows before him. And then she says, she fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt, right? So she takes Nabal's guilt on herself. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Nabal means fool. I don't know why you name your kid that. But But I, your servant, unless you know something, I don't know. Um, But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. I didn't know. I didn't know they were here. Otherwise, I would have shown them hospitality. Now then, my Lord... As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. So here she's already anticipating that, she's, she's, she's anticipating that he, he's going to hold back. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. And there's two things here. Restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. So these are the two things precisely that David had sworn he was going to do. He was going to bloody the whole place and, then, and he was going to save by his own hand. Um, but again, he's not the king right now. He's been anointed, but the throne is not his. He is not the executor of justice. It's not his to give. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please, 
Forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. So Abigail has also heard the, the, the prophecies about, about David and that he's been anointed, and she knows, she believes that he's the one that God has set for the throne, that, that there's no ambiguity, right? So Nabal said, oh, I don't know who's it going to be, Saul or David. She says, no, forget about it. It's going to be David. Because my Lord is, and this is great, this is a confession, for my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. She's eloquent. Really, uh, this is great, great stuff. This is a great speech. And the lives of your enemies shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, the prophecies that, 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 that Samuel has, has said about David, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And again, yeah, you see it on the page here. This is the temptation for David, these two things, to, make, to, to, to take it before it's his time and to make it his own, uh, to become Saul, to become Nabal, saying all of these things are mine. I, 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 my, 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 right? That's what he wants. Um, and when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Any questions? Okay. Now, this is where David is at his best. And, th- and this is what sets David apart from Saul. Listen to what happens. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. You have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. So what happened to David's rash vow? He dissolved it for the sake of life, right? Which is, which is what Saul should have done. He should have said, my, my son Jonathan is not guilty. His life, is not, his life ought not to be thrown away on account of my rash vow. If there's any sin here, it's mine for swearing this vow. And that's what David does. George. The thing that worked from his fellow soldiers or whatever, would he get from taking back his oath? Well, it's a great question. I mean, it, 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 I'm not sure culturally speaking, but... Um, he, is, he is here uh, exhibiting repentance, right? And repentance, saying, acknowledging his sin, acknowledging that he had made a mistake, had sinned against God, had sinned against the house of Nabal. Um, in, in doing that, um, you know, that is the better example to set. And the men that, we, we find out the men that are with David, his sons, his sons end up being rather worthless, but the men that follow David are not. Um, and and if, so read Second Samuel, and you find all about those guys. Okay, good question. Okay, any other questions? We've got seven minutes, so let's do this. Um, and Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing of all until nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal. The wife told him, his wife told him these things, 
and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. So, justice wasn't David's to execute, right? God took care of it, right? And, um, it's, I mean, it's an important thing to, 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 to note that God punishes evildoers. It's not, we don't have to worry about it. God takes care of it, right? Sometimes it's really quick. Sometimes it's ten days later. But other times uh, we have to wait a little while, right? But um, now listen to, listen to what David says here uh, in, in number 13. When David heard that Nabal was dead, what does he say? Uh, he doesn't say, oh, poor fella. He says, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. So he thanks God that God avenged him and that God kept him from sin. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. He says, thank you for, for doing this. This was yours to do. That wasn't up to me, right? Okay, 14. Um, here, now 14 is, is too bad. I wish it wasn't in the chapter. Beginning at verses... Uh, at the end of verse 39, because we get a preview of, of um, what the rest of David's life looks like. Um, then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael his daughter, to, daughter David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. So, so yeah, there you already see how David has a, a, a penchant for doing things that he shouldn't do, right? And the story of, of Bathsheba and Uriah is, is, is echoing in the future, right? But just as we saw David here penitent, when confronted with his sin by Abigail, you remember what happens when Nathan comes to David after he's, after he's had Uriah murdered and he's taken Bathsheba as his wife? Do you remember Nathan comes and tells him the story, the story about the, sh- the man who stole his, his poor neighbor's sheep and slaughtered it and wouldn't give him anything in return? And he says to David, Behold, you are the man. What does David say? He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Right? That's why, that's why David is a righteous man. But it's because of David's blood guilt that he later incurs. So he is, he's, not, he's not without blood on his hands. Um, it's because of that that he doesn't get to build the temple, right? Remember, Solomon, his son, builds the temple because David, um, David fails to keep his hands clean from, clean from blood. Okay, do you have any questions? So I'm gonna I'm gonna say one thing and then I'm gonna ask you a question. Uh, nope, I'm gonna read to you one thing and then I'm gonna ask you a question. <laughs> Turn the page. Thank you for the mood light. No, that's cool. Leave it down. No, no, just, just <laughs> so um, there's this there's a uh, here's a book about Lent. Um, I don't I, I've only read part of it. I don't know whether I can commend the whole thing to you, but there's this great uh, bit that comes from. Uh, a quotation from the brothers. Is there anybody who speaks Russian that can tell me how you pronounce it properly? I, I'm always saying it in different ways. Karamazov? 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 I'll go with Karamazov, okay? Listen to what it says. In his novel, Dostoevsky puts the following teaching into the mouth of his elder Azasima. Brothers, do not be afraid of men's sins. 
Love man even in his sins, for that is the semblance of divine love, as is the highest love on earth. And later he adds, At some ideas you stand perplexed, especially at the sight of men's sins, asking yourself whether to combat it by force or by humble love. Always decide I will combat it by humble love. If you make up your mind about that once and for all, you may be able to conquer the whole world. Loving humility is an awesome force, the strongest of all, and there is nothing like it. So apply that to the story today, and you see right away, David was combating his neighbor's sin with force. Abigail with humble love, right? Okay. Uh, do you have any questions? Um, it's not going to probably work for me to pose the sort of questions that Pastor Bruzek does. Unless, you have, unless in, in, in the time that we've spent here, something's come to mind about how you can apply this, how, how you might... Who, to whom might you tell this story? There's, there you go. I'll drink my water while you think about it. To whom, to whom might you tell this story? A general person, not Wayne Scheidt. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult people. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, some, yeah, and, and, that, and that's, um, that, that could be true more generally. Somebody... Somebody who, somebody who thinks that um, the kingdom of God is of this world, right? Or that, that, the, that, um, that the kingdom of God is something to be taken by, that, that, that takes by force, right? Um, the story shows quite the opposite. Yeah. 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 Right. Was it Mary or Derek? Derek. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I, I and I think I mean it's a long story to tell. So if you can if you can trim it down, that might be better. Or if you're a really good storyteller, then you can keep them give their attention. Um, but but it's exactly that's exactly right. Um, and it, and it's very easy to I, I, at least I think it is uh, very easy to see yourself in this story. Any any other ideas? Okay. Well, it says 1045 right here. So let's uh, conclude with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much.